0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today's episode is called The 2023 Recession the World Has to Have. On the agenda, we'll look at inflation around the world and the actions of central banks Next, we'll look at the telltale recessionary signs developing. We'll then explore company earnings and valuations and the interaction between the two. As always, at the end, we'll discuss the investment implications. Today on the show, as always, we have Damien Klasson, who's Nucleus Wealth's co-founder and chief investment officer. Damo, welcome. Hey, Sam. Hey, Damo. We're also joined by David Llewellyn-Smith, who's Nucleus Wealth's chief strategist and co-founder also. Dave, Welcome.
1: Thanks mate, good
0: to be here. Excellent. Uh, My name's Sam Kerr, I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. For those listeners that don't know, Nucleus Wealth is an Australian active and passive investment manager. We're a global macro investment house and use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage our active portfolios. We're also the first to offer offer passive direct indexing in in Australia, which has been labeled ETFs 2.0 as you can customize your chosen index. Just a quick housekeeping reminder, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. We are live every Thursday at 12.30 Sydney Melbourne time, so jump onto the Nucleus Wealth YouTube channel and you can ask any questions that come to mind and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. You can also follow us on your preferred podcast platform as our show is available on all the majors. And if you'd like to look at the slides in more detail, we'll post them in the show notes this afternoon, and you can view these at nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinars. So now we've got those formalities out of the way, we'll get started. So Damo, I'll hand it over to you.
2: Thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, so what we wanted to do is a bit of an end of the year wrap up and uh, a bit of a preview for uh, for next year as well. So we thought we'd sort of have, um, we've had a few guests on the last few weeks sort of focused on on specific topics um, so what we want to try and do is sort of do a bit of more of a broad overview about where we are. We um, titled it "the the recession the world has to have." Now this sort of come from you know uh, back in the uh, the late '80s, early '90s, um, Australia had the, the recession we needed, we had to have, it was sort of titled by by Paul Keating. Now now you never uh, nobody never titles these in, before they happen. It's titled after, but um, you know it, it, the central banks have really telegraphed that that they're they're going to keep raising rates and, until inflation comes down and uh given inflation especially annual inflation is going to stay high for for some time um you know there's a there's now increasing signs uh that the recession is 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 going to happen and um we're pretty sure once it's all once it's all out there it will be titled in the similar way you know saying the recession we had to have because inflation was <laughs> so high so um so with that we sort of run through um yeah from a few different angles. I thought I'd start on the inflation first, um, and then I'll jump into some of the valuation, company earnings, and then um, yeah, we, oh, sorry, and then we'll sorry, then we might do a bit of a run around all the, all the major uh, countries just to sort of have a look and and see what which ones are uh, being affected. So I'll st- start with just the highlighting the um, uh, probably the key measure of uh, inflation is that the that the Fed looks at is the core what's called the core PCE inflation. There's a few different types of inflation in the US um this is the main one they look at and uh you can see there's a red line on the on the chart we're showing here showing that it came in at roughly 0.2 in the last month after a whole bunch of sort of much higher readings so 0.2's you know back roughly around the the, the level you'd expect um yes you know, in a in a more normal economy you can sort of see um 2016 17 18 you know lots of months where it was 0.2 or above and then then you'd have ones where it's below and and the net effect is you know it all comes out at, at roughly two percent um now is this just a one month um you know it could just be a one month blip um but you know we our, our thoughts are that no we're actually starting to get into the phase now where, where um, they're really starting to, to flow through especially on the goods side goods side is you really starting to see that um deflationary pressure starting to come through um, now it's worth noting as well. I've got a chart up just showing what would happen. So, so let's say we were in um, today's settings were were absolutely perfect. That that um, you know we're going to get a point two and a and a point one and just oscillate between the two um, for the next uh, for the next twelve months. So, you know, the, um, uh, what does that actually mean for for annualized inflation? So, so there's one point is about saying what what is the Fed looking at um, on a uh, what are they looking at in terms of the the near term ones? So the so the latest month was was fine, but they're not going to they're not going to um, stop cutting raising rates, or or they're not going to stop start cutting rates based on on one reading. They'll need like multiple readings to to get a to get a feel for it. Well, let's say that we just average this two percent per annum inflation mm-hmm. from here. Um, it's still going to take us three or four months before we're going to see uh, inflation anywhere near. Um, levels that they'd actually start thinking about pausing or they can actually sort of justify pausing so so at current levels you know even in march by the by the end of march so so the numbers that would be reported in in the middle of uh april next year you're still talking about five percent ish inflation um and so i guess what we're coming from from that is it's actually gonna be quite hard for the fed to 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 reverse course it might slow and, and or stop and wait and see how things are going but but actually reversing course is actually going to need some some quite significant um uh drops or or, or and so that so the idea that you know will the fed pivot uh is uh you know, it's going to be it's going to be difficult for them to come up with the the reasons to to actually come up with a pivot
1: it'll certainly pivot to uh pausing pausing if, yes if, if, if it gets those month-on-month readings of 0.2 well, yeah. sustained. It, 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 the, the month-on-month readings will certainly register at the Fed, but it won't yes. be cutting by any means unless it's.
2: Yeah, and it's that, and I good. guess that's the point. Is even yeah, I guess what I'm coming to is you know, even if you went to negative five percent deflation, mm-hmm. so actually from here on in you started registering negative numbers. By March, mm-hmm. you're still going to have over two percent inflation. Yeah, and so you know, you in this full, full-on deflationary. Um, bust hmm. you know and it could be three months of, three, of inflationary bust and even at that stage the feds going to have a hard time you know that, turning around and, and actually saying oh no we're you know we, we've done too much let's uh we, we're going to reverse course." so i guess what yeah the point is they're, they're probably going to have to wait the, the thought would be they'll keep raising for a while then they'll sit and wait for six months or so and then they'll work out if if they have done too much they'll they'll then work out they've done too much and then have to start reversing course after that so yeah, it's unlikely to do a, a 180 um, very quickly. So you know the, the the thoughts the market have about pivoting. Um, I mean, we've seen a couple of times already uh, where the where the thoughts are that oh maybe they'll go from 75 basis points to 50 basis points, and the market you know m- immediately sticks on five percent with the whole thought that you know it's all back on. Yeah. Um, okay, so it was inflation. Uh, it's worth doing as well just uh, highlighting. You know, there's a there's a flexible and a sticky inflation um the flexible inflation really took off and sort of hit that sort of 20 percent uh level on a, on an annualized basis at the, um, earlier on this year uh that's now fallen uh, it's fallen quite steeply uh it's still you know at i think it's a think it's got readings of just a bit above five percent um but but clearly headed down quite quickly uh the sticky inflation, though, is the one that's now now rising and, and and at similar levels, and that's going to take longer to come down. And and that's partly because some of the measures that go into that, things like rent, um, and uh, and healthcare and and things like that, often only get calculated once a year, and so or they get or there's like a gradual averaging process of it. And so um and so what we'll see is that those those effects are going to keep coming through.
0: Yeah, and, and Damo, it, it, what what is the the main differences between the core, uh, the flexible, and the sticky? Like you mentioned, the rent and the healthcare, uh, but what what other ones are there?
2: Yeah, so things like uh, food will, will falls into your um, into your flexible. Uh, there's a lot of goods that, that will fall into the flexible ones, and, and the idea is that they're the types of things where um, you know, let say let's say fashion and stuff like that, where yeah, if, if if there's lots of demand out there, the prices will go up. But but um, if they start getting left with lots of inventories, they'll start discounting. And and food, for example, yeah, will bounce around a lot with with weather conditions and, and other things going on. And so um, where the thought is is that that's not actually going to that, – that type of inflation doesn't tend to create create ongoing inflation, whereas the sticky one does. Um, having said that, the sticky one has a, a bunch of weird things in terms of how it's calculated, which can mean that, you know that the actual headline figures can can overstate how much is um uh yeah they will understate it for a while and then overstate it so rent is a good example where rents took off um, and you didn't see that really in that sticky prices for for a number of months and then then it's all suddenly hit but it's going to take a number of months to to flow out the other end once once rents start falling as well which they seem to be doing in, in the us yeah they're actually
1: falling quite heavily um in leading indicators kind of private surveys and things but but it will take time before they hit sticky inflation the other the other feature of sticky inflation is that it's more service oriented as damo says and 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 has uh, maybe not a stronger relationship but certainly a strong relationship with wages growth which is still quite strong in service sectors of the u.s economy and so uh, it's it's not out of the woods in terms of uh you know this sticky inflation and and how long it will last uh and that imp- that does raise the possibility that you know the fed will need to uh actually keep tightening albeit at a slower pace uh to get that terminal rate up and choke off this this ongoing sticky services inflation so Uh, it's it's pivoting but uh, there's a question of how fast some of this sticky inflation falls certainly at the headline level we've got a lot of big falls ahead already still locked in because so many uh, goods prices are really plummeting Um, but once when it gets to these core measures it is going to take a longer time and the debate now really is about where that terminal interest rate is uh, and it's possible that it's uh, higher, not lower, than markets are current, currently considering. Mm. The other thing I just want to highlight: um, the, th- the I've got another
2: chart there on the on the right showing the three month annualised change. So same numbers, same same measures, but <clears throat> just showing on a, on a shorter term. And so you can see that the three month annualised for the um, uh, for the flexible inflation has been incredibly volatile. So you know you hit sixty percent at one stage, and then you know mm-hmm. two months later you're back to five percent, and then back up again to twenty percent, and and now it's um, slightly below zero. Um, but yeah, it, I guess it's just highlighting that, that part of it is is really bouncing around a lot. Um, uh, whereas the the uh, the sticky inflation there is a lot a lot steadier, but and it sort of seemed to have sort of capped out a little bit at that over five percent, and and um, yeah, anyway, we will we'll see where um, where that leads. We'll get the next the next batch through quite shortly, um,
1: and which then is, it's worth which is is, is likely to be uh, um, pretty market friendly for a little while on the headline numbers falling to you know from from their peak up to nine back down to five. They've Got a fair way to fall. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Okay. So that probably leads us into central banks then.
1: Um, it does so, so this is the sort of second section of our presentation today which is where we, we've been through this inflationary shock uh, and tightening shock and what we're starting to see is some recessionary signs in the global economy uh, beginning with the central banks where uh, an increasing number uh pivoting away from their aggressive tightening um, the latest was last night in Canada, uh, where the Bank of Canada, you know, hiked another 0.5, but, uh, you know, said it's easing back. Um, we've seen that with the Fed, um, despite, you know, some pretty heavy-duty easing um, uh, uh, ha- already handed to the economy via markets um, with the rally in stocks and bonds. Uh, the RBA led the uh, the, the pivot towards slower tightening remember this is a second derivative pivot it's not actually a pivot to rate cuts or even for that matter pausing it's to slower hikes Uh, and uh, just across um, emerging markets as well we're seeing central banks ease off on on the tightening at least at such an aggressive rate so they're they're ratcheting down towards to you know sort of um, more normal increments of tightening uh, which clearly, you know, they they sense that their economies are slowing and, uh, you know, inflation is slowing and that the, if they can, they'll try to engineer a soft landing, which, you know, as the RBA admitted this week, is a pretty slim chance. Uh, and the Fed said that as well, but that's obviously what they're going to aim for. So despite the fact that they're, they're slowing, um, they're still jawboning pretty hard in terms of uh, you know, their their objective of lowering inflation. Um, and so, you know, you've got this this circumstance where slowing inflation and growth on one hand is, is slowing their tightening, which is a recessionary signal, but at the same time, you know, potential for more tightening as we've just discussed with the Fed and its balancing of sticky and flexible inflation. Uh, and so they're both pretty recessionary where the, the central banks are... You know, still tightening morally, if you like, uh, and, and literally, while they slow those literal hikes. So they're still quite hawkish. And, um, you know, in a sense, the central banks are, are still t- tightening into the slowing economy. So that's quite recessionary, too.
2: And, and it's worth noting, I'd actually forgot to put this chart up, um, but it is coming out in a, in a property um, piece out later on this afternoon that we're putting out. Um, but the Australian, the, the, the effect, if you if you look at the amount of mortgages out there, and you multiply it by the um, uh, by the change in interest rate over one year, so basically what we're looking at is saying, you know, in yeah, back in the eighties, um, interest rates rose a lot quick, a lot more quickly, but the mortgages were as big, and so it didn't make it as, as big of effect on the Australian economy. So if we look at basically as a percentage of GDP, how much are these rate rises actually affecting? Um, uh, you know, how much are they taking out of the the economy? Now, most of the time, most of the types of rate rises we saw, um, you know, pre-financial uh, crisis, um, back in the sort of late '80s when when interest rates really really took off, was about two percent of GDP as a as a one year change. So that's how much more people had to be paying in interest versus um, uh, on, on their mortgages. We're already at about four in terms of the current levels. So. It's already, you know, roughly twice as big of a tightening as we've, we've seen in terms of the, the amount of money that people are going to have to take from, you know, from, from their ordinary spending and stick into their uh, paying off their mortgage instead.
1: Yeah, well, that's a consequence of big fiscal policy push, you know, for the pandemic, you know. Yes, investing yes. a lot of money and, and growth into these economies. Yeah, a little bit of, yeah,
2: a little bit of reversal because it, it fell by 2% first and then rose by another. Then rose by four so yeah there is yeah. there is that effect in terms of it saying yeah we cut rates before putting them up but there's still a massive effect on yeah it's
1: a, it's a huge shock so uh and then we've got this question of sticky inflation how influential that will be over central bank of thinking and you know there is a possibility that the pivot is too early uh, uh especially in the us where there's sticky inflation well inflation got much higher uh, sticky inflation got much higher wage inflation got much higher uh, and so that whole edifice of sticky inflation may again uh require the fed to move the terminal rate up higher than markets currently expect so you know all those things are, are recessionary if you put them together um, that is everything slowing except sticky inflation and so we're not in, imminently going to get rate cuts let alone or, or we're not even necessarily going to get a pause um in the foreseeable future from the fed and uh, let alone cuts so um,
0: central hey, justhawk
1: issues sorry, sorry Dave just quickly. So, do do you mind do you mind just us. Our second set of recessionary signals, and this is really, you know, the big one for me, um, and that is yield curves, uh, which are, you know, um, a kind of impersonal and dispassionate uh, predictor of the business cycle. Um, You know, when a yield curve is steep, that is, long-end bond yields are rising more than short-end or or, uh, short-duration yields, then growth... You know is then the bond market is basically predicting rising growth and inflation ahead so the inverse is indicating the opposite when you have really high short end rates because central banks are tightening and longer end rates longer duration rates falling because markets are anticipating that tightening having an effect with lower inflation and growth in the future then if it goes too far you get what is called an inverted yield curve Uh, and that is well precisely what we have right now in the u.s uh, we have an extraordinarily inverted yield curve the most inverted since the 1970s and in australia it's still uh, positive but is falling very quickly and and it's tracking in trend terms exactly with the u.s with a lag of about six months which to me is simply indicative of of the different COVID policies that we had. The US was reopened much earlier. Australia had its lockdown policy, which disintegrated early this year and gave us this huge flush of activity of pent up demand that is coming afterwards that was already underway in the US. And so we're lagging the US cycle by about six months. Uh, And so that's what I see in the Australian uh, yield curve, which is flattening towards inversion. Trailing the U.S. by some distance, but I think it will invert too in due course. And what an inverted yield curve in indicates is recession. Like it's a brilliant indicator of recession, especially at the depths of inversion that we're seeing in the U.S. It's pretty much got a hundred percent record of forecasting recession. There are some who are arguing these days that this. Uh, doesn't really function as well as it used to because central banks have waded into bond markets and are buying, uh, um, you know, it through quantitative easing, various um, duration bonds. But I, I just don't buy that argument. I don't think that they um, change the absolute functioning of the bond market, and I don't think they alter the curve and the meaning of it. And so... Uh, well, they do alter the curve, but not sufficiently to to alter the signals, if you like. And so, this is a classic pre-recessionary signal, um, which I think is very convincing. And moreover, it takes all of the uh, the bias, the and individual and research um, orientations out of the question. So you know, you you obviously have various cu- cultures and um double standards con- conflicted things going on in the various market forecasters uh, and and they're invariably more bullish um than you know perhaps reality is suggesting uh, and so you have a number of people forecasting soft landings and things even though it's pretty obvious that that's going to be a difficult act to pull off well well that's way it's way.
2: really I'm a put your money where your mouth is isn't it so I look to the bond
1: market as a much more objective kind of signal on this front, and uh, and it's pretty pretty convincing in terms of recession in the US. And as I say, I think the Australia is trailing it uh, pretty directly into the sa- in the same direction. So then you've got a second set of of uh, indicators, you know, that come from sort of recession probability indexes and models that everybody has. Um, the thing the key thing to think about on this and i've just provided the federal reserves version of this which does include um things like the the state of the bond curve if you look at this you will see that most of the time these models this is pretty typical of these models is they never actually give you the recession signal uh as as a, a probability um when in fact, they're very good at predicting a recession, even though they give it a low probability. So if you look at the chart here, the only recession that really that this Fed model, the two of them were in the 70s and 80s, the Fed model predicted. And yet, um, even when it said it was there was a higher likelihood than normal, but not the base case for a recession uh, in this modeling, it was actually a brilliant signal for a an imminent recession and right now it is indicating just that so that's another set of indicators uh, and so then we you know can flip over and look at some of the real economy stuff in real time which is corroborating you know these models and what, what the bond market is telling us uh, and we'll start with the pmis so globally uh you know we've just had a, a fresh set of pmis and then they're clearly contractionary uh both for services uh, and goods manufacturing and this is right across the world uh, obviously not consistently everywhere but certainly um uh in aggregate so the global economy according to pmis is already in contraction um uh, let alone you know what's coming uh, and you know the forward indicators are getting worse, not better, uh, and so you know it's just another corroborating signal that the real economy is reflecting uh, what the markets are saying. Um, and another signal I look to for you know the relative health of the global economy is trade, and in particular there's just a brilliant correlation between Korean exports and as a leading indicator for global export growth. Uh, and I've provided a chart here where you can see say, say Korean exports have fallen off the, uh, you know, the proverbial cliff uh, and, uh, you know, look to, to uh, quite likely to continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Some of this is the Chinese COVID lockdowns, but um, <clears throat> uh, in fact, a, a fair bit of it is the Chinese COVID lockdowns. But at the same time, you know, I, I do think that in due course, we're going to see... That you know, problems in demand in the US and Europe will continue and offset any improvement in China in that index. And Dave, why why is the Korean a good know, leading indicator? Looking at real demand, a uh, supply and demand uh, in the global economy. There's um, issue.
2: So, yeah, I think you've got your, I think you've got your uh, sound turned off, Dave. Sorry, I think you've got your sound turned off. So you, oh. you've just been monologuing. Sam oh, is just asking about uh, Korean <laughs> exports. Why? Why it's such a good indicator for? Oh, the World sorry, sorry,
1: sorry, sorry. Ah, uh, uh, probably because it's so dominated by um, semiconductors, um, which are an input into you know just about every goods you manufacture these days. And so, uh, you know, when you when you get a big dive in semiconductor um orders and production it's it's indicating for you that um global industry is uh you know preparing for diminishing output probably because demand's bugging
2: mm. and it's probably a good it's good capex uh economy in terms of you know they make a lot of ships they make a lot of cars they make a lot of yeah um yeah sort of other durables or, or or things that are you that are involved when you're um when the capex cycle is expanding and so um and and so what you tend to see in recessions is um capital expenditure is one of the things that gets cut the most. And so that's why um, you know, in, in terms of what we're looking at, that's that's probably one of the leading edge indicators and then then you start flowing into some of the other ones and and inflation and,
1: and Although I, um, I would, I would to, say uh, there'd be some of that, but the capex tends to trail consumption. So um yeah, I think I think CapEx, the CapEx hits, hit is probably yet to come. Like a lot of the CapEx indicators in the US are still fine. They're certainly down a bit in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so actually, I think the CapEx is probably the next leg down for Korea.
2: Yeah, sports. I think some of the leading edge CapEx stuff we are seeing, though.
1: Yes. Like yeah. there's, a, there's a certain, yeah. There's a Certainly certain, in IT, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah that's another batch and then finally oil oils you know a nice one for uh real economy demand uh uh and of course affected by supply but you know supply is considered to be relatively tight in oil right now uh and certainly by wall street which is clearly very long oil so you want to take that into account when you assess what they're saying but um at the moment, what, what's been happening over the last couple of months is, um, is, you know, for the last year or two, oil's had this um, what is called backwardation where prices are very high at, at the front end of futures and then longer duration they come down. And that's telling you that the world is short of oil, basically, and it's trying to incentivize investment in more oil because people are paying a lot for oil up front. Um, And then, you know, the price diminishes as you go out um, as that investment is supposedly coming on stream. What's been happening is that premium at the front end has just been falling and falling and falling. And so despite the fact that a lot of research houses are telling us we're short of oil, what's happening in the futures curve is that there's just more and more oil available immediately uh, and the, the the gap that you've got between those two is the backwardation sort of heading towards possible contango which would tell you you've got too much oil up front uh, and so oil is is actually yeah and we've seen the price of oil peak at you know $120 odd and then it's chart break down this week and looks like it's headed to $70 pretty quickly uh, if it and may even go a little lower i don't expect it to fall apart like we've seen in other recent recessions but you know because i do buy some of the arguments about about supply being more restricted these days especially for us shale um but the oil futures curve is definitely suggesting that there's a problem with, with uh you know oil demand given supply is restrained so so we got our, our basket of um, recessionary singles there <clears throat> around the place, and then we can turn to, you know, individual economies. So we thought we'd run through quickly the major economies and have a look at, uh, you know, the the, the kind of uh, mix of narratives that are, are there, uh, and what they say about recession for next year or growth. And and you know, we've pretty much touched on and covered a lot of the US US already but more specifically um us property is in a pretty serious bust now prices are falling at a really good clip month on month um trailing well behind australia so i don't expect that they're necessarily uh, impacting consumption yet but they are falling what is what has been now crashing for months up, months is new construction and that's where the real acti- activity um, real economic activity input or impact is. Uh, and then I think starts now down by at least a third from the peak, if not a little more. And we're starting to see the US um, industry PMIs roll over pretty sharply as well. Um, uh, the ISM this week was pretty weak. And um, there, you know, there's some really interesting combinations of of features of these things. If you put them together like new orders and inventories and stuff, and they're all indicating inventories are high, new orders are weakening, demands coming off, et cetera. And they're they're really good leading indicators for future activity and for earnings, more importantly, which we'll get to before too long. So uh, they're also suggesting that the long expected inventory um down cycle that we've talked about for a long time is 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 kind of beginning to get underway uh, and that you know is also reflected in things like korean trades um, where we've seen which we've seen already uh, and i expect that to get worse but then on the uh you know flip side as we've already discussed services wages are still booming and, and activity there's there's good but you know the good side of stuff, and if we get a decent inventory, unwind on that front, you know, that that in all by itself is very recessionary. Uh, and so, you know, at this point, we're 50-50 we're on, on um, and, uh, you know, whether the Fed has stopped. I think it's a much higher chance than that that we end up in a U.S. recession next year. Um, but at this point, we're, we are kind of got these mixed set of signals in the U.S., uh, as it rolls over. And so, you know, the terminal rate of the Fed is up for discussion. Um, China China has been stumbling along and weakening for the last sort of quarter as COVID uh, lockdowns have their revenge. But of course, the big pivot we've seen over the last few weeks is that, Ch- that China's gonna reopen. Um, <clears throat> this is going to deliver an imminent recession in China, uh, you know, probably for a quarter. Maybe a quarter and a half, uh, I'd say through Q1 at least, and then tipping into Q2 as you know, COVID runs right in China and you will get basically what our, China, our private sector lockdowns there as people don't go out anymore, mobility crashes, um, hospitals are overrun. we'll see death rates climb, or well, at least we would <laughs> in a democracy, we probably weren't there because the data won't be available.
2: Uh, but I guess, I guess what David's saying is um, China's invested a lot over the last few years on its testing regime and it's got a quite extraordinary um, uh, testing ability to be able to sort of within a, you know, test a whole city within a few days. Um, but what they haven't got is um, the, well, one is vac- vaccination, broad vaccination rate from, from a vaccine that works. Uh, and then the second thing they haven't got is um, uh, enough intensive care uh, if it does rip through the population, and so we're, what we're looking at there is just saying, well, um, and and I guess the third part is they've um, they've spent the last couple of years talking about what a great job China's done and and how bad this this um, uh, this pandemic is and and how how much better they are living in China where they've sorted everything out versus that the decadent West where they've let it run, and so because they've already scared the population into it. Um, you know, now it's going to be hard to then turn around and say, okay, just for, you know, all that stuff we we're telling you before, you know, now it's safe to go out. You know, we've been telling you for, for, for multiple years that it isn't, and so um, yeah, and so that's why Dave is saying, you know, even though you you you're starting to open up, um, the question about whether Chinese people will actually get out and 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 broadly spend and and do lots, um, if the if we're seeing COVID sort of rip through the population, is um, yeah it's certainly a point to be concerned about
1: yeah well i mean australia is a great analogy here we we went through precisely this having been you know browbeaten by dictator dan and others for for a couple of years and then losing control of covid when omicron arrived earlier this year seems like 10 years ago now but anyway uh and you know, we we basically the economy more or less crashed as we had COVID before it then absolutely ripped. And so, we're, you know, over about a quarter was the pivot. I, I I think probably it's more extreme in China. I think the fear is greater. Um, so I think it would even if they let it rip. I think it will take longer for the private sector to to and they pro- have, some genuine,
2: they have some genuine dictators as well. And they do and so
1: uh, uh, it'll take a bit longer i think in china for to process through this so probably q1 q2 is q1's weak q2's soft but then the second half you know you'll see this pent-up demand come booming back in china Uh, and yolo for me is is the acronym of of the times um you only live once uh you know very hard to quantify what these things mean but it makes sense at least that you know households that have been cooped up under their dunas for year after year, fearing this virus. Once it's once it's come and gone, you know they, they really do spend like like you know uh, they're living for today, um, and you know we've seen that pretty pretty repetitively around a reopening economy so i expect a pretty good consumption boom in china by the second half of next year there are also what, what, and tempering signs. that
2: though as well david is um there hasn't been anywhere near as much transfer to uh the, the household sector so in, no, in the u.s and and australia and, and other countries a lot of the stimulus was just straight into households whether it's um you know increased unemployment benefits or directly writing checks or, or whatever it is whereas china has been very much um supporting businesses
1: there has so, been a lot of private yeah. saving in china though and so some of that could get run down but yep but i expect yep. a decent one but at the same time whilst that happens they'll let a lot of their COVID stimulus policies go so infrastructure for instance will wind down and that's been incredibly powerful over the last six to nine months um, uh, that said, there are also signs that they, that they are, you know, actually going to try and um, trigger a new property cycle. This is quite fresh. Um, yesterday, there were a bunch of policy announcements that weren't direct demand stimulus for property, but uh, they actually dropped the phrase um, "properties for or houses are for living in, not speculation." the first time uh, uh which is pretty pretty significant i think so you know ch- property is once again for speculation and not for living in <laughs> according to shipping so i mean I, I think it'll be quite difficult to turn property around because everybody knows you'll you'll get the shits within your short order and step on it again but uh you know it appears they are going to you know uh do further measures to to get property moving how much who knows but um so china china is is on the verge of basically recession if it's not in it already uh, uh, but it's going to you know, rip out of it next year but there's one other feature to that is you know as a global recession transpires there'll be a big big trade shock in china so now what that all ends up with is i think china ends up with maybe four percent growth over the year big dip in the first half big reasonable pop in the second half and then we settle into its structural problems again in 2024 so i don't think China's going to save anybody next year but you know it and, and it will make it worse in the short term um uh and i guess for this presentation that's what really what matters it is going to contribute in imminently to a global recession before things get better uh and so that brings us home to Australia. And I, I have to say I've, I've been, you know, read a lot of research from various um, investment houses and, and one of the most consistent themes is how Australia is going to outperform all other developed economies next year, uh, which I think is just a reflexive response to, uh, you know, China coming out of lockdown and the assumption that uh, with some justification in terms of iron ore, um lng and coal uh uh sorry um did we do it in europe yeah we did so um we, i think we missed europe that, so maybe we that we you know uh, uh, those various commodity dimensions of the economy are going to be strong, and so therefore the, the australian economy is going to be strong and i i, I just completely disagree with that conclusion Um, Yes, there will be strong features within Australia, one of them being the budget, for instance, which is going to outperform its forecasts thanks to um, commodity um, taxes. But Australia has the most interest rate-sensitive economy in the world. You know, this is why we've seen the RBA be the first to back off interest rate tightening. when The household sector is just massively indebted. And we have embedded in in the RBA's tightening for next year something we keep talking about, which is the mortgage, the fixed mortgage reset, which you know Australia really has no experience of. This is uh, just an unic- uh, unintended consequence of our own version of QE in COVID, where we dropped rates um, very low and for a fixed period of time, a yield controlled the yield over a duration, yield curve control, it's called, and. Uh, as a result, the banks wrote fixed rates for that duration at very low levels and that is about to exhaust itself and they're going to revert to variable rate loans uh, and they're going to, you know, literally jackknife from 2% to 5 and 6 and it's a significant number of mortgages. That that's going to happen to over the next twelve months, and it's just an immense shock to discretionary income and spending for households in Australia. So, you know, we think that's quite serious, uh, and um, we'll will you know it's not particularly damaging to the property market itself, but it, yeah, although it can be if it gets really bad. The main issue is economic growth because uh, it's going to hammer consumption um i mean you can you can toss up how much um i've done run numbers anywhere between two and four percent of discretionary spending coming off uh sorry two and four percent of gdp discretionary spending coming off uh it could be higher could be lower but it's going to be material is the bottom line and that's the key consideration for what's happening in the australian economy next year so even even the powers that be the rba the treasury what have, have you are effectively forecasting recessions in australia even though they won't admit it because they disguise it with mass immigration of two percent uh, which gives you a baseline of two percent growth but they're all forecasting sort of you know 1. 1.2 1. 1.3 1. 1.5 percent growth and so it's a per capita recession that's already being forecast uh, in Australia, and I wouldn't be surprised if, it's actually, if it becomes a real recession. The combination of of the hit to consumption and ongoing house price falls also hitting consumption is not an experience Australians have had in the modern time, and I think it's going to be quite damaging. Um, on better news, it does look like we're going to get an energy rescue, which means you know the the Albanese government will intervene on on energy prices with caps for for gas and coal, which would mean the RBA is not driven up to the extreme uh, cash rate that that markets were forecasting earlier um, in the year. Uh, it could have done anything from four to six percent if this had been left to run, because. Uh, energy bills would have added anything up to 9 or 10% CPI over a couple of years, uh, which would have boxed the RBA in and forced it to crash all sorts of parts of the economy to fit in these energy prices uh, in terms of sort of uh, inflation averages. Uh, So that is not going to happen, it looks like. Um, The precise detail of that is not agreed yet, but it looks like there's plenty of momentum for it. And even electricity futures are starting to fall at a pretty good clip in Australia. So that's really good news and means we're going to avoid a, you know, a catastrophe, but still going to be pretty weak. So assume, assuming that deal gets done, I think the RBA is all but done. I think it's already overcooked. It's tightening um, and in terms of, in reference in particular to this fixed rate reset. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to see a pretty good Australian recession next year the rbm may go again in february if we have a good christmas um but it would be a mistake if it did uh, and it will be the last one i suspect and this is even if the fed is forced to go higher i think because um australian households are are just going to face you know a lot of stress unprecedented stress in in the modern experience in 2023 Uh, and so other offsets like fiscal will be there. And as well, you know, there's a veritable boom in services investment coming down the pipe. But they're just going to evaporate if households go down. As as Damo suggested, CapEx falls really quickly once, once business gets a wind of a recession. So, you know, some of the things that appear strong right now won't last. Uh, and so there you go. Global recession in 2023, which is relatively... Uh, straightforwardly defined usually as any growth under two percent I think we can probably do better than that in the sense of being below two percent next year in the global economy certainly per capita recession in Australia quite possibly um, uh, a a real recession well in, in media terms of two negative quarters of actual GDP but it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, this recession is going to lower inflation. If it doesn't do it initially, the Fed's going to retighten, and it'll just be a bit later. Might be the second half instead of the first half, and <clears throat> uh, to cru- to squash that sticky inflation. Um, and you know that kind of brings us to to what the fallout will be for asset prices. Uh, and there's two considerations on that before I hand over to Damon to look at valuations and earnings um, the first is obviously top-line growth is 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 hit pretty hard in a recession for corporates and for earnings but the more significant factor in every recession and particularly in this one is margin margin squeeze uh, you know basically earnings have been so spectacular over this COVID boom because um you know corporates had incredible pricing power and expanded their margins uh and inflation gave them a free pass to do that almost without you know consequence and that will now go into reverse where falling inflation and rising competition as demand diminishes and top-line growth falls gives you a massive margin squeeze and so i expect the earnings recession to actually be worse than the underlying recession so handing over to you do
2: yeah so let's talk um let's talk some valuations just for a minute so we've so we've got sort of a rough guide about inflation um now this you know dave's done a run through of the different countries and the economic outlook um the the key with always with investing is saying it doesn't matter how dire the the outlook is if you can buy the buy the assets for cheap enough then you know you, you're still you're still out there um there's still a reason to buy right now uh our i've got a global 12-month forward price to earnings now this is just one of lots of different measures we can use but, but this one's the most one of the most commonly used and is and it's pretty um we think is pretty is pretty reasonable at, at this point in the cycle um it's basically sitting dead on its it's sort of 20-odd year average um and uh after coming back from so 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 15.4 coming back down from 20 so so the froth that real froth has been taken out it's also sitting pretty close to sort of the average it's you would have seen from 2015 to through to 2020 pre-pandemic it's pretty close to that average as well so so it sort of looks pretty stock standard um the issue is though when you look at the uh, banks, mining, energy, insurance. I'm going to sort of strip those ones out because they they do have some um, some peculiar peculiarities that you don't see in some of the other sectors. And in particular, uh, the the resources sector, where um, seeing that the resources sector is cheap is is not always a good thing. Like often, what that means is you're actually at peak cycle earnings. And so, for example, right now, um, you know that you might have been looking. Well, go back a couple of months. You're, you're looking at at energy companies that are pricing in, say, a hundred and something dollar oil, and and so they look really cheap because investors were looking at it saying, "Well, that's, that's great, you're only a hundred dollars per barrel," but but we're not expecting that to last, and so so the stock will look quite cheap. And then as as that, as that price falls and the the, the forecast for it, for it sort of, it's almost a bit of a reverse indicator. Anyway, long story short, though, if you strip those out and so you're just looking at the rest of the economy, which is sort of the the, the biggest part. Uh, it actually still looks a bit expensive. Uh, it's, it's sort of probably at about the 70th percentile um, relative to to it. Uh, and then more importantly, when you look, uh, more importantly for Australian investors, when you, when you strip back and look at that versus Australia, then you notice that uh, Australia looks expensive. So the raw figures of Australia versus the world is, is basically bang on its average. But when you look at each individual's part, um, you know, Australian banks versus world banks, they're extremely expensive. That's the bottom left one. Uh, bottom right is is the uh, the world resources versus Aussie resources, and again, you know, ab- at above the ninetieth percentile in, in both cases. And then uh, if you do look at the the top right, uh, Aussie Australia sort of ex banks and resources uh, versus the world ex banks and resources. Again, we're at the ninetieth percentile of where we've traded. It's uh, you know on, on every single um, on every. On every individual part, uh, Australia just looks expensive, and um, uh, and and so you know not only uh, if so so I guess what we're saying is is if if the other economists that Dave thinks are wrong, like if, if so they they're all saying I guess that the Australian, the Australian economy will come out better than the rest of uh, the world. Well, that's already priced in. It needs to come out way better than the rest of the world for that to, for, for, for you to make a successful investment in Australia versus versus global. Yeah. Um, especially any, the, especially uh, that bank valuation. I mean,
1: it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> if there's
2: any disappointment, um, you know, Australia's, the Australian stocks are priced for, uh, per, for perfection. Um, then looking quickly at earnings. Mm. Um, so I've got a chart up here just sort of showing. Um, and using the US S&P 500, which is pretty close to the global um, earnings, it's got most of the largest companies in it, but we're just looking at the forward estimates and each, each of these blue lines is showing how that sort of changed over time. So the 2022 numbers sort of started at about 225 and rose a little bit and then ended up back at, um, at pretty close to 220 where, where it sort of finished uh the the 2023 numbers um they sort of rose initially and and sort of hit about 250-ish and they've already sort of fallen back and they've come back about about 10 has already been taken off those 2023 numbers and and we're looking about 230 at the moment so 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 still an increase on um uh on, on 2022 so you know if there is a recession um then at the moment you know, company forecasts are still saying that uh, that company earnings are going to go up five percent, um, which is which is would be unprecedented in in a recession. So there's 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 quite quite likely, you know, if, if we're right on the recession front, there's there's more weakness to come in terms of those forecasts. And then 2024 numbers are still well above. Even
1: even a mild re- even even a mild recession would typically drop
2: earnings twenty percent. Yes. And so I've got some growth rate ones now, which are sort of similar to to that. But, you know, I I talk about um, sort of later year forecasts as being, as as most years, it starts at 10%. That's sort of like a nice round figure that that basically companies forecast, you know, they don't know what they're going to... what they're going to earn, then, then the, the forecast usually comes out about ten percent, and you can see on all these graphs that the, the, um, each one of these is the line of progression of how these forecasts progressed over time, and the final figure is where it actually ended up. So you can see they almost all start on that ten percent line, and then they go one way or the other. So 2015, 2016, when we had a slowdown in the uh, in the world economy, uh, but not, but but generally not recessionary, um, we saw zero growth from. Um, uh, from all these companies. In the 2020, we saw a minus 15% growth when, when we sort of hit that that genuine recession. Um the the massive bounce back in 2022. Uh 2023 numbers, as you can see that they're, they're coming off, but there's we think there's still further to go. And uh, in 2024 the you know the, the numbers haven't even started to fall yet. And so um yeah, they're just still looking at at, at uh, 10% growth so uh lots of room for for earnings to come down
1: if uh if, if we well, look at a recession uh, yeah, and the problem is 2023 if, if, if well, i would like to say the base case is the problem is 2023 mm-hmm. um and 2024 could actually hit hit 10 or even be higher the problem is it'll be coming off a much lower base from 2023.
2: yeah, yeah. it'll be a bit like 2020 to 2021 is that you know yes yeah. The, yep. the heights reached in 2021 were really determined by the by how far it fell in 2020, as opposed to sort of a natural. You know, yes, and and so quite often people will look look at numbers um relative to the previous peak. So they'll say, oh, in, in earnings, that's often a it's quite a um yeah as a, a way of looking at it because then then you're not you don't see those those extreme bounces back coming back. But um yeah, our take would be that yeah if we are going into recession, which we you know, we think we are there's at least another 10 percent you can knock off earnings um you and know probably more. Five, yeah most likely more um you know negative five percent would be a, a pretty good outcome for for a world economy going into recession um mm. and and so yeah that's so and and what that means from the valuation front is that you know we're sitting at a at sort of a a a little bit expensive on the valuation front before we've had the earnings downgrades. so um what that usually means what what it, often ends up in is you get the downgrades of you know 10 15 more downgrade in terms of earnings uh and then you get another whack because um uh, people no longer want to pay above above average for for uh, a market where you're seeing earnings fall and so that can yeah, the combination of that can can uh can lead to some relatively dire circumstances
1: i just add, so- add one thing there as well demo. Where we're talking about you know a mild recession is all that's needed here because the- corporates have had such amazing pricing power with inflation if there's a minor recession that that kills inflation brings it back into where central banks want it it should be a base case because that's their job uh, then that that in itself represents a huge margin squeeze now and typically in these earnings forecasts about two-thirds of the reduction in earnings is actually from margins not from volumes and top line growth mm-hmm. so even a mild recession here that diminishes inflation back towards or near um, typical inflationary ranges will be very very severe of margins and it's margins that drive the majority of earnings downgrades
2: yeah and, and where that comes from i guess conceptually is um there's a lot of companies that have managed to put through price rises now because everyone else is rising, their, raising their price. And so you know, they, they may have not needed to, or, or at least, you know, you're even looking at, at companies that, you know, are complaining about, oh, you know, my, my wages bills, you know, gone up by 5%, you know, it's, we've got this huge thing coming through without actually saying, well, yeah, but we, we raised prices by 8%. So that's actually expanded your margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the issue now is as demand falls away, are they they're going to cut their prices to try and to try and chase it? And we think in a lot of cases uh, there's a lot, especially in the in the goods area, there's been a lot of extra capacity put on. and so um, you have just built a new factory to because because you couldn't keep up with all your demand. Um, new factories online, now your demand's falling away. and and so what do you do? Do you try and leave your prices high, high and and only run your factory at fifty percent, or do you try and um, you know, drop your prices a bit to pick up market share? And, and what typically happens is everyone starts dropping their prices to pick up market share and, and prices get smashed and, and everyone, yeah, nobody wins from
1: that. But, well, um, and then you end up in a classic negative cycle where because margins are squeezed, profits are falling, share prices are falling, um, you know, especially in the US, the corporates just bring in the cost cutters and the head, job headcount starts to go. Uh, which feeds back into, uh, you know, wider um, sentiment and top-line growth starts to fall as well.
0: Excellent. Uh, so, guys, we've got a few questions that have come through. Um, but firstly, I just want to mention uh, we missed actually slide 11, the economic outlook for Europe. So oh, they actually in a recession there. So, Dave, do you want to just give us a quick, uh, quick overview on that? Uh, yeah, that,
1: that one's actually pretty important. I mean, it's basically in recession now. <clears throat> the important thing coming out of this, I think, is that there's a, there's a secondary energy shock, I think, building for Europe and to some extent globally for the first half of next year via LNG and, uh, and gas prices, uh, gas, sorry, and coal prices. Uh, because the first half of the year tends to be when the inventory restocking happens for the Northern Hemisphere. I know that's the off season for the consumption of these energy fuels, but that's when the price pressure's on because that's when they're building their stocks. And we're already seeing coal rocket back to highs and LNG trending up again. So um, that's going to keep the ECB interested. Uh, It's already overcooking it, in my view, because, frankly, it can't do anything about energy prices. European wages are firmer than Australia, but they're not tear away either. So I, I also think the ECB is on the verge of policy error. So tough year for Europe as well.
0: Nice one. Uh, so we have a question from Wolfers. Uh, he uh, they're asking, do you think Australian or US bonds have turned the corner now, and is the negative correlation with stocks and bonds coming back?
1: Uh, look, those two questions are interrelated. I would say the negative correlation is coming back if if they've topped. Um, I. You know, that really comes back to US sticky inflation. Um, I do think that uh, the Australian uh, uh, curve flattening will continue, um, but it may be, in- well, it will be influenced by what happens in the US uh, in terms of sticky inflation and where that terminal interest rate is. If the Fed's forced a bit higher than the 5% currently priced, um, then that may give us one more round of bearish bond action, even in Australia. But um, uh, if that happens, I'll just be buying more of them um, because I think that that would be, you know, short term, and we just just be getting, uh, you know, um, you know, one more round of Fed tightening before, uh, you know, a slightly later recession happens in the U.S. and globally. Uh, and bond yields, especially at the long end, come down again, uh, much further than they have been at this point. So can't say for certain if we're at the turning point, but I would, I, I'm at least dollar averaging into uh, those bonds because, you know, I think sooner or later the central banks win.
0: Okay, excellent. Uh, We've got a question from Jude. So uh, they're saying some of Nucleus, uh, Nucleus's smaller investments in the growth fund have done incredibly well. How do you decide the allocation size of these winners?
2: Yeah, look, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say every, every every time you ever have a winner, you should have bought more of it. And every loser, you should have bought less of it. Um, (laughs) There's a uh, look, we in terms of sizing the um, sizing them, we start from a, a view of uh, we've got our quality versus value matrix. So for anyone who hasn't seen that, basically what we we put everything on a, on a, on an axis, uh, one axis for for quality, the other axis for for growth. Uh, sorry for for value, and we want to buy stuff that sort of sits under the curve, so to speak. so, if you're, um, if you're extremely high quality, we can own you all up and down the, the, the curve. If, depending on, you, know, you can get quite expensive and we can still own you, but um, you know, it's, not, it's only when you get really expensive that we'll look to sell. Uh, whereas a stock that's just average quality, um, we'll buy it if it's really cheap, but then we'll sort of tip it out um, as soon as it starts getting you know, closer to average price. Uh, and so what we'll do is depending on how far away from the line, that sort of tells us how much we, we should be buying. And then we look at the market cap weights and and, and try and work out from there. It, it, it is relative to market positions as well. So, you know, for an, for, a, for bigger stocks, um, you know, if we like Apple, for example, you know, Apple might make up three percent of the index already. So so we need to buy more than three percent if we if we like it and we want to outperform the index. Uh, and then the other factor, and then and then from there, um, so that, that's sort of the the, the 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 quantitative factors. And then then from there it comes into um, more of the qualitative about the overlook, about, look, are we trying to have more more growth, more defensive um, you know, what's sitting in our portfolio? Sometimes there's stocks in our portfolio we're holding there in case we get other things wrong. Um, so, you know, some of the factors that we might, we might, you know, we won't be zero weight, you know, we, we won't sort of turn everything on to saying, we, we think this is our base case and this is where things are going, but we want to have an offset if we get it wrong. But, you know, there's some stocks in there that will sort of help rescue. And so, yeah, it depends depends very much on that stock and, and looking at the the um, the different outcomes and, and and how we see the portfolio moving over time
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
2: and actually, and I must say as well one other thing is we tend to hold larger portfolios with a view that look you, you can get individual stocks wrong, everyone does uh, and we just want to make sure that you know getting an individual stock wrong doesn't sort of um, isn't the difference between a a, a um, you know it doesn't make a huge hit if, if you're holding 10 percent in every in every stock and one of them halves well you've just lost um you know five percent of of your portfolio so we're, what we're looking at is um a much broader portfolios and, and then sort of so that uh it's more about the overall uh exposures and and a little bit about the the individual stocks
0: Nice one. And uh, Dave, this one's for you. Just a quick fire question. John S. is asking uh, for an update on Australian gas reservation. We've obviously talked about that a lot.
1: Yeah, well, I think we're going to get there. Uh, the signs are good. Um, the premiers, the Dunciad premiers, as I had, was forced to christen them this week, are, are locked in negotiations with the federal government over uh, you know, what price to set the caps at for gas and coal versus uh, compensation for lost royalties um, the fed is flush uh, sorry the federal government is flush with money because commodity prices have, have been so high especially for coal and so they have the wherewithal to share um, some compensation with the states I therefore think that they will get there um, there's a whole lot of theater and grandstanding going on between the feds and and the premiers um who uh frankly are saying some really stupid shit, uh especially in queensland where you have anastasia Palaszczuk saying we we have to protect the government-owned generators who are making a fortune because they're recycling those profits as energy subsidies for households when in fact the federal government is saying well you won't need them because we'll lower the prices <laughs> that's absurd um but it looks like we'll get there uh and if we do at the mooted prices of 13 dollars gas 125 for coal um, then that will end the energy shock basically it will more like already flow through David. Uh, certainly in queensland and new south wales it will have state governments are offering various subsidies elsewhere <clears throat> that mean those prices haven't flowed through so they may actually still see a few price rises but they'll be relatively small, uh, and it will pretty much um, end the influence on the CPI and the RBA if it gets done. And so we will have dodged a bullet, because well we dodged a bazooka really, because if it was allowed to run, and uh, you know current global energy prices were allowed to filter back to Australia, we'd be looking at uh, you know nine. 9 to 12 percent added to the CPI over the next two years, catastrophic interest rates, crashing house prices, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, I think we'll get there. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, electricity futures are really starting to fall. And, you know, that's a good sign that the market, you know, is is coming to the view that this deal's going to get done. Uh, so, it's pretty good news. The only caveat to it is that. Um, you know, in the last quarter, these <laughs> extraordinary energy war profiteers, foreign-owned, sucked out the equivalent of 6% of Australian GDP in income, uh, meaning, you know, our energy exports were making us fantastically poorer, which is obviously a stupid circumstance. Um, but what it also shows you is that Um, There's an unbelievable amount of profits here that we're not getting our fair share of as Australians because we own the resources. Uh, It is one thing, an essential thing for us to stop punishing ourselves for exporting those resources, which I think we will get to. Where Labor won't go because it's, you know, a complete pussy is to actually recoup um you know and a fair share of those profits for australians and we are talking you know six percent of gdp we're talking an enormous amount of money that the budget could could get for various service for services for australians that we won't get there's no discussion to take us there unfortunately but at this stage because australia is such a you know um, disastrous policy con <clears throat> context you know it's 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 a big win not to shoot ourselves in the head.
0: Amazing. Thank you for that update, Dave. Uh, (laughs) Sure. So so now we have our viewer question of the week. Uh, This is for viewers to have some discussion in the comments section over the coming days. Uh, So the question for this week is, what is the most important thing to watch for in 2023? So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of the other viewers over the coming days. Uh, now we've got our final segment, the investment implications. So demo back to you for the investment implications. Right, Dave,
2: do you want to take this week?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. I've,
1: I've lost the um, spreadsheet. Bond,
2: bonds boom, stocks down, Aussie bottom, and property bust.
1: Well, there you go. Four. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I expect, you know, uh, good return from bonds over the next – Six to nine months. Um, at some point, I do think the negative correlation with stocks reimposes itself. Uh, so I think don't want to be long stocks at this point. Um, but, you know, there will be a terrific buying opportunity for stocks at some point next year. Uh, and properties probably got another six to 12 months downside in Australia before the RBA realises, you know, has smashed Australian households, households and um, the end result is cuts, rate cuts by, you know, second half of next year. And then property, you know, starts to stabilise and probably takes off again in 2024. Aussie dollar, a um, lot less bearish than it has been, um, uh, much harder to sort of predict downside for it now. Um, but I do think... It probably goes lower at some point over the next six months. The next six months before it goes higher again, um, uh, just because I think you know we're going to see a fairly bearish impulse in global markets, and that's not a great context for the Aussie.
0: Fantastic, nice one, Dave. Thank you very much. Um, and Damo, thank you again uh, for putting on the show. That almost wraps us up. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for all the insights. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Pleasure. Excellent. Uh, So we do welcome your feedback on the podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Just one sec. Just um... Yeah, if you do have any ideas, please drop it in the comments section below or send us an email at contact at uchilliswealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact and book a call with myself. Don't forget to like the video now. And if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you can please share it with them. Also, if you'd like to see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content or subscribe on our homepage for our weekly Nucleus News and Investment Insights. We do put out a lot of artic- uh, a lot of other articles and videos in addition to this podcast. And of course, you can follow us on all major social media. So for myself, Damien, Dave, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.